Snapping a four-game winning streak, the Seahawks were on the wrong end of a 21-16 defeat to the Buccaneers in Germany. Rob Rang and I are going to be dishing our in-depth takeaways for Monday Musings here on Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Monday episode, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s out there. Those of you that went to Germany, safe travels back to the States or wherever you came from. And thanks for listening to Locked On Seahawks and making it your first listen five days a week. Unfortunately, for the first time in over a month, it is not Victory Monday here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. The Seahawks coming up short in Germany made a furious rally in the fourth quarter, but couldn't get enough opportunities to get over the hump. And Tom Brady and company leave with the win. The Seahawks go into their bye at 6-4, and four, still a respectable record atop the NFC West. But there were certainly some opportunities to get that seventh win, and they weren't able to capitalize losing this historic game in Munich. We're going to dive into our in-depth takeaways for Monday Musings, answer your mailbag questions, and much more on a jam-packed Monday episode that is brought your way by Prize Picks. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy. Pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than a Prize Picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on your entry. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to 100 bucks with the promo code locked on. That's prizepicks.com, promo code locked on. Now for your lead story here on the opening drive of our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. The Seahawks came into Sunday's game against the Buccaneers in Munich. Red hot winners of four consecutive games. But the Buccaneers put an end to that on Sunday with some hard-nosed running and some stiff run defense. And really, that was the tale of this game, Rob. Obviously, we can look at the third downs as well. But I felt this had a big bearing on the fact the Seahawks went one for nine on third down, and the Buccaneers went 10 for 15 on third down. One team was able to run the football successfully on early downs and position themselves with easy third down conversions, pick up first downs on first and second down runs. The other team could not get anything going on the ground, and they were constantly dealing with second and third and long situations that put them behind schedule. The Seahawks have been really good at avoiding that most of the season. They didn't get it done in this football game, while the Buccaneers put on a clinic on how to stay on schedule and move the chain, sustain drives, and finish with points. That really was the difference in this game. And unfortunately, kind of a bit of a regression on the defensive side of the football, where the run defense had been much better the last four weeks. This looked like the team that we were critiquing the first five weeks that couldn't stop a peewee league team from running the football. Yeah, as you said, Corbin, it did feel like a bit of a regression. It felt like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers basically stole the game plan that has allowed Seattle to be so successful in this four-game winning streak. Just to put a couple of numbers to what you were saying there and, and to what Seahawks fans from all over the world, and as you said, buddy, thank you to all of our listeners, all of our viewers as well. But again, just put some numbers out there. I mean, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ran for 161 net rushing yards in this game. Seattle ran for 39. Again, 161 to 39. It's surprising that the game was as close as it was, frankly. Uh, you know, the Bucs had 44 rushing attempts. Seattle had 14. 
So really, that's what it comes down to. I think that Tom Brady and Geno Smith both made some spectacular plays, both made some mistakes. Uh, you know, but again, the, the running game to me is where this game was absolutely won and lost. Um, I, I think that it was interesting. Um, we, we talked about the fact that uh, you know the, the Bucks had a, a former first-round pick, Leonard Fournette, as their kind of featured back throughout much of the game. But then when they put in their backup Rashad White, they, they still, I mean, he, White wound up being the game's leading rusher in, in this contest. Um, you know, so just kind of a, a testament to the holes that were being created by Tampa Bay's front, um, and the fact that Seattle was unable to get anything going uh, in their own ground game. I mean. Kenneth Walker III, we, we've kind of talked about him as a, you know, probably the leading candidate at this point to be Offensive Rookie of the Year. But he played like he was in a foreign country because, and again, I don't want to blame all, put all the blame on a rookie running back. He just wasn't getting any kind of push, uh, any kind of holes created for him by Seattle's offensive line. Ten rushes for a grand total of 17 yards. Geno Smith was Seattle's leading rusher in, in this game. So again, I, I don't want to just simplify our analysis of, of this game by just saying it was the running game. But really, that's what it came down to is that Tampa Bay had Seattle's defense off balance because of the fact that they were able to run the ball and they were able to spread the ball around to a myriad of, of different receiving options. Wide receivers, running backs, tight ends, everybody was involved from the outset of this game. Seattle really struggled to get everybody involved in this football game. It felt like it was either DK Metcalf early or a couple of runs up the middle that basically got stuffed and then punt the football. Um, and because of that, Seattle got behind the sticks. They got behind in the scoreboard. They wound up coming home, a long flight home, with a loss. So keeping those numbers in mind, the fact the Seahawks could not run the football themselves, they couldn't stop the run, especially late in the game. Rashad White was the hammer that slammed the door shut with a couple big runs in that final drive to prevent the Seahawks from getting the football back to try to steal this win in Germany. What do you think going into the bye is the bigger concern for the Seahawks team? The run defense regressing back to what we saw the first month or so of the season, or the fact that this run game on offense, even though there's been some highlights the last few weeks, that there's been a lot of inconsistency and some extensive time where they haven't been able to get anything going. You know, for me, it's always stopping the run. I just think that Kenneth Walker III is that dynamic of a, of a talent, even against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers team that, you know, we talked about this. We thought that Seattle might struggle to run the football. Uh, a big reason for it was literally the biggest man on the field, Vita Bea. And while he did not uh, have the monster performance statistically that I think some maybe, maybe some people would have anticipated, I thought between he and Akeem Hicks, he made it, they made it really easy for Tampa Bay's inside linebackers. It felt like Devin White was everywhere. Uh, you know, and, and Levante David as well made a lot of plays sideline to sideline and back in coverage. Uh, you know, White, I think, had two sacks in this football game as well. A big part of that is because these two undersized linebackers were able basically to get blockers off of them and be able to make big plays. So to me, the bigger concern is not the fact that Seattle struggled running the ball, even though it was statistically ugly against Tampa Bay. It's the fact that they were they struggled against a team that had been having all kinds of difficulty running the, the football. And again, it wasn't the former first-round pick, LSU star uh, Leonard Fournette, that was gashing Seattle. It was Rashad White, a good football player. Don't get me wrong. I, I really liked what he did at Arizona State a couple of years ago. But 
At the same time, I don't think that he is a future NFL superstar um, the way that Leonard Fournette has shown himself to be, at least at times. And the fact that when Seattle gets a little bit behind and other teams really start to focus in on the running game and Seattle struggled in that regard, that to me is concerning because, again, when we start talking about playoff possibilities here, all of the teams that are going to be in the playoff mix are going to be able to run the football. And you certainly know that the San Francisco 49ers, the only team in the division so far that's beat Seattle, you know they're going to run the football with Christian McCaffrey now. And so to me, that is the biggest of these two concerns. Well, I agree with many of the points that you made, and certainly you have to be able to stop the run to be able to play defense in the NFL. You have to be able to get it done. If teams can gash you from the start of the game to the end of the game like the Buccaneers did, it's very difficult to get off the field, and it's very difficult to limit points in the scoreboard. And the Seahawks were put in that position today. I'm going to go the other direction just real quick. I think there's reason to be a little bit concerned about this run game. Now, I know statistically, like you look at the stats here, they got 206 rushing yards from their non-quarterbacks against the Chargers. They had 120 against the Cardinals last week. Three of those four games, they averaged at least 4.3 yards per carry. But here's why I do have some concern. The Giants game, just 61 rushing yards. 3.1 yards per carry this week, 17 yards, 1.7. Last week, they were held under 40 yards rushing in the first half by the Arizona Cardinals, who are not a juggernaut when it comes to stopping the run. I guess my argument is that we have seen way too many extended periods where this offensive line has not been able to generate any push. I'm looking at the interior O-line in particular They're just not winning enough at the line of scrimmage. And we saw last week's second half, they were able to turn things around when the Cardinals defense got fatigued. And that's part of the battle when you're playing football. You want to have that run game to lean on late, but they could not get it going today. They couldn't get it going in that game against the Giants at all. There were no game-breaking runs. And Ken Walker, the third, struggled in that one. For two and a half to three quarters last week, there were issues too. That is something they have got to get figured out. There's got to be more consistency running the football. So to me, that's actually a bigger concern. I think Seattle got a wake-up call here. Hey, we can't just sleep into a game and think we're going to stop the run. I think that the coaching staff, I'll never admit it, I think they overlooked the Buccaneers' running ability. And there were some personnel decisions that were made that I think kind of pointed to that, and they paid for it on Sunday. So I'm looking at the offensive side right now. I'd like to see a little more consistently running the ball to go with Geno Smith. And I think you'll see this team get back to putting up 30 plus points per game because they're capable of doing, and they did some good things yesterday, but um, uh, they got to get that offense out of the ball, the running game. There's got to be more consistency there somewhere, somehow. And I don't know how they're going to get it done, but um, they've got to find that consistency coming up next. We're going to get to our mailbag. We're going to answer your questions from our Twitter users as well as YouTube. We'll get to those coming up next here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Today's today's podcast is brought to you by Total Wine and More. This holiday season, find what you love at Total Wine and More. With so many great bottles to choose from, it's easy to find a new favorite single barrel bourbon or the perfect gifts for everyone on your list with some help from a friendly guide. And with the confidence of knowing you found something special for the lowest price, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine and more. They offer curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. TotalWine.com is where you need to go to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, and of course, please be 21. 
You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. This is your host, Corbin Smith, rejoining me after a long hiatus here. My co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. And for your second listen, don't forget to check out the Locked on Sports Today podcast from the games that matter the most to the biggest stories in sports. Go beyond the scoreboard and behind the scenes with local experts and insights only Locked On can provide. Locked On Sports Today, available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Rob, it's time for our Monday mailbag. We had a lot of questions from the 12s. We've noticed after a defeat, sometimes those questions can get a little bit testy. So uh, we're going to get to a few of those. There were a few of them were like, you know what? We might want to wait till later in the week since it's a bye, and then maybe we can touch on some of these topics. But First question, which was specifically for you, Rob, coming from Devin tweets, do you think Seattle is underutilizing Brian Monet right now? Why extend his contract if he's going to be a healthy scratch for a game like this one? I mentioned this on the podcast, the postcast yesterday, that that was a head scratcher to me going into the game. And I just mentioned a minute ago, Rob, here on the show, there were some questionable personnel decisions that kind of signaled to me that there wasn't much respect for the Bucks' run game, and the Seahawks paid dearly for that. They, they really did. Um, you know, and, and Corbin and, and Devin, if you are a longtime listener, first off, again, thank you. Um, and, again, if you are a longtime listener, you know that I will kind of pontificate my points here. But I, I'm not going to overly explain this one. Yes, I do think that Seattle is underutilizing Brian Monet. I think if you are going to extend him the way that Seattle did, then you've got to find a spot for him on the field. There should be very few times where he is going to be a healthy scratch. You should anticipate that a team that likes to run the football as much as Tampa Bay likes to run run the ball um, that they they were going to try to do that obviously Tom Brady it remains the goat he, he proved it yet again in this game but I really think that you had to anticipate that that was going to be something that Tampa Bay was going to look to be doing you know Al Woods at his size at his age that he is going to wear down you want to be able to shuffle those big bodies inside and so to me, yes, I, I do think in this particular game that Brian Monet was underutilized. And I think th so far over the course of the season that he has been underutilized as well. Next question coming from DG tweets. What's your take on Sauce Gardner versus Tariq Woolen for Rookie of the Year? This one is truly, all I can think about is Sheldon off Big Bang Theory when he's relayed news and then throws the papers up in the air. Because that's how I feel looking at the numbers between these two. Because it really feels like it's 1A and 1B. On one hand, Sauce Gardner this year, the number five overall, top five pick, I think I believe he's actually picked number four overall by the Jets has allowed just 43% of targets thrown at him to be completed, which is almost 15% better than Tariq Woolen this year. So he has truly been a shutdown corner. He's only given up one touchdown. He's got two interceptions. Passer rating against him is 12 points lower than Tariq Woolen, around 44, I believe, according to Pro Football Focus. So for those particular metrics, Sauce Gardner has been the better pick. But at the same time, turnovers win awards and Tariq Woolen now has five interceptions thanks to Lorne, uh, Leonard Fournette I wanted to I wanted to put his name together and call him Lornette but maybe that's what we'll call him now after that horrible pass that got intercepted but five interceptions now for Tariq Woolen he and Earl Thomas are the only Seahawks and two of the three rookies since 2010 to have that many interceptions in their first 10 games that is elite company and again 
turnovers win awards. So Tariq Woolen's got that working for him. He has two fumble recoveries on top of that, a blocked field goal that was returned by Mike Jackson for a touchdown. I'm still leaning towards Tariq Woolen because I think his overall resume, including the special teams added on top of I know that this is a defensive award, but a blocked field goal is a defensive play, even though it's special teams. He's on defense. To me, the resume is leaning more towards Tariq Woolen at this point. They're both really impressive young players, and you can make arguments for Woolen, but or arguments for Gardner. But I'm going to say that Woolen right now is still the one that I would pick with a vote for that award. Brandon M. tweets, at what point do the Seahawks just admit the D. Eskridge pick isn't going to pan out and let the two rookie wideouts from this year's class play? Rob, it almost seems like, at least for one of those rookies, that's kind of already happening. Yeah, Derek Young got some playing time in, in this game. I'd like to see some more catch opportunities for him. Uh, you know, as far as w- when do the Seahawks just admit that they that the D. Eskridge pick isn't going to pan out? I mean, I don't know if they have to put up a billboard somewhere. Uh, you know, um, you know, to 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 admit a mistake. I don't know that they that they feel it is a mistake. I think they certainly are disappointed in the lack of production from D. Eskridge. I think that they are very disappointed in the lack of durability from D. Eskridge. That was one of the things I saw on his Western Michigan tape is I saw a tough guy. I saw a guy that was able to make that transition from offense to defense and back as, as well as special teams because he had grit. And yet, unfortunately, that is not what we have seen so far. So there's no question about it. It's been a disappointment. Um, I also think that the Seattle is is very intrigued by what they've seen specifically from Derek Young to this point. Um, but at the same time, there is a different level of juice that D. Eskridge provides and and so to me that that's why you want to keep giving him his opportunities to me this isn't so much about Marquise or excuse me about Derek Young um, or Bo Melton for that matter I think it's about Marquise Goodwin has seized that slot receiver position and the, the proof is in the pudding um, you know with, with his yet another touchdown reception here and even albeit in a losing effort against the Bucks on Sunday Next question coming from Marty tweets, I know it's only midseason, but have you two seen enough from Austin Blythe to consider him a possible long-term answer at center? I personally have my doubts still. I'm kind of leaning in that direction myself, and I will say this. Austin Blythe has played really well in pass protection for most of the season. He has been automatic up there. Now, he's gotten bull rushed a few times. I even thought in this game yesterday that in the second half, Vita Vea and Akeem Hicks weren't doing very much. I thought the interior offensive line played well in pass pro. Run blocking, as we talked about earlier, that was a different story. They couldn't get anything going in that regard. But I feel like Blight has been a clear and obvious upgrade in pass protection. His communication has been crucial to the two rookies, Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas, playing as well as they have as first-year players. I mean, starting two rookies, it only happened two other times since 1970. For these guys to have the success they've had, A lot of that boils down to the coaching and having a veteran like that who knows the system inside and out had played for Shane Waldron and Andy Dickerson previously. So from that standpoint, he does look the part. I just have concerns with the run game stuff. As much as Pete Carroll likes running the football, how important that is to his philosophy, I don't feel like they're getting their bang for their buck necessarily in that regard. He can win as a zone blocker, but if he has to try to – body up a 330 pound defensive tackle good luck he's not going to be creating push and so I think that's the question the Seahawks have to really be answering right now 
is he somebody that's a long-term answer in all facets? Because I think in pass protection and communication, you could absolutely sign him to a multi-year deal after this year, and you'd feel good about it. It's the run game where I would have some questions. Next question from Cascadia Sports Tweets, and this is one that I know Rob was interested in discussing. Should Quandre Diggs be back next year at his $18 million salary, or should the Seahawks release him to save $10 million and draft a replacement? Uh, maybe this is a little bit harsh of an assessment in this question, but I know that there is a lot of frustration among the fan base given the contract Diggs was given this offseason. Yeah, I, you know, having just watched the game one time so far, Corbin, I mean, it, it would be difficult to to really pin a lot of blame on Quandre Diggs, but I, I thought that he struggled a, against the Bucks, and I don't think that this has been uh, Quandre Diggs' most impressive season, and considering how well that he is projected to get paid next season, then I think that that does have to be a conversation. You know, I, I was pretty critical uh, of the idea of bringing Quandre Diggs back at this type of salary, you know, when he was a free agent, especially coming off the injury, especially being an undersized guy. My, my argument was that as statistically poor as Seattle's pass defense was a year ago, as good as Quandre Diggs was, again, Seattle's pass defense was terrible. So why bring back a player who was part of a unit that had been terrible? This is a pretty solid safety class coming up. I am intrigued by what we've seen, um, not only from Josh Jones. Obviously, you've already allocated a whole bunch of money to Jamal Adams, an entirely different conversation. I'm intrigued by what we've seen from Joey Blunt as well on special teams. Another impressive performance by him on special teams, oh, by the way, on Sunday. So to me, I, I don't think that this is the slam dunk that Quandre digs his back. I think that's got to be a conversation there. Uh, but at the same time, until you feel good that you've got a replacement, I don't think that you should be cutting a player who is a proven difference maker, both on and off the field. Uh, the communicator that Quandre digs is, I have, I have a great deal of respect for Quandre Diggs. So I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves and say, oh, sure, cut him to save money. When this feels like a very much a playoff contending team, and I think the, the play of Seattle safeties is a big part of that reason. Yeah, there's still an entire second half of the season, too, and we know that he was coming back from the broken ankle. So you, know, you can't really use that as an excuse at this point. He's got to play better than he has, but we've still got plenty of games for him to start turning things around and play like the safety the Seahawks have had out there roaming center field the last three seasons. And if he's able to do that, that's going to be a big boost for this defense. But there could be some future stuff riding on that. And our last question here, coming from Deshaun tweets, are the linebackers still struggling to adapt to the 3-4 defense? It seems like maybe Brooks and Barton are just 4-3 linebackers and don't fit the new scheme. So this was the question that was being asked a lot in the first five weeks. And so, of course, people are going to go back to that after this game. I don't think the linebackers were the problem yesterday. I really don't. Uh, and I know Cody Barton and Jordan Brooks got locked up on blocks a few times. There were a few missed tackles in there. But I thought the Buccaneers' success running the football mainly happened for two reasons. I didn't like the defensive game plan by the Seahawks coming in. And I thought the front line got worked. And that made it second level blocks could get to the linebackers. And that is a recipe for disaster. Also, the front line really struggled with the pulling guard concepts, the gap runs that the Buccaneers brought out that a few of the players said after the game they hadn't seen from them on film. You've got to be prepared for that kind of stuff. And they were getting kick out blocks and all kinds of stuff. I felt like the front line was the much bigger problem. And oh, by the way, Cody Barton ended Tom Brady's interceptionless streak at 399 snaps yesterday. 
and he had nine tackles. Jordan Brooks had 14. He was gutting out cramps at the end of the game. I know that neither one of them played perfect games. There were mistakes made, but I feel like the front line is really what hurt them in this game defending the run. So let's not pile it too much on the linebackers. Now I got to go back and watch the all 22. Maybe my opinion will change a little bit, but based on what I saw yesterday in real time, I thought the linebackers played fairly well. There were some mistakes. There were some big completions given up in coverage, but I don't know that it feels like to me, it was more of a game plan thing and some busted coverages with the secondary players uh, that really played into that as well. Up next, we're going to get into our Monday musings, our in-depth takeaways, a close look at what went wrong for the Seahawks in yesterday's 21-16 loss to the Buccaneers in music and Munich. We'll get to that coming up next here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. We're nearly halfway through the NFL season. We've got week 11 coming up already. We're past the midway point. I've got Russell Wilson getting untracked next weekend with two touchdown passes. Broncos fans are dying to see him actually play well. This might actually seem like a bold leap at this stage of the season, but with prize picks, it's easy to play. Daily fantasy, put those entries to the test. Pick two to five players. Do they score more or less than their prize picks projection? You can win up to 10 times your money on any entry. No competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available. And prize picks offer projections on any sport that you watch whether it's the NBA, MLB, NHL, college football, or even MMA. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy, safe and fast withdrawals, and currently operational in over 30 states as well as Canada. Download the PrizePix app or go to prizepix.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with a promo code locked on. If you deposit $100, PrizePix will give you $100. Don't forget to enter the promo code locked on at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co host in crime, Rob Rang. To all the 12s out there, whether you are a regular listener or a first time listener, we greatly appreciate you. And thanks to all of you that make Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. For your second listen, make sure to check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast, the biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big name recaps, and the take of the day. Available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. The Seahawks, unfortunately, losing their four-game winning streak in Munich yesterday at the hands of Tom Brady and the Buccaneers, dropping to 6-4 and four going into their bye week with a 21-16 defeat. Certainly a game where it felt like there were a lot of opportunities for Seattle to find a way to win it, and yet they couldn't get the job done. Key turnovers at the wrong times, one for nine on third down, a number of issues on defense, as we've already documented many of them on this episode. Rob, let's start on the offensive side with our Monday musings. What is something that jumps out to you after watching this game in real time about the offense that really was stagnant the first two and a half quarters, kind of found some life late, but it was too little too late. It, it was. And, you know, to me, it was a, an example of the Geno Smith that I thought I remembered. Um, and I, I saw a guy who was a little bit skittish. Um, and I, maybe that was on Geno. Maybe that was on Shane Waldron as the offensive coordinator. As we talked about, we didn't really like the, the game plan from the defensive side of the ball. I didn't like the game plan from the offensive side of the ball. I, I thought that one of the reasons why Seattle was able to uh, go undefeated against the Arizona Cardinals is the way that the Seahawks uh, rode their running game and rode the tight end position. Um, you know, we again, this this past 
victory against the Arizona Cardinals a week and a half ago now. Uh, you know, Seattle had 12 receptions by their three-headed tight end monster of, you know, Will Disley, Kobe Parkinson, and Noah Fant, of course. That, that, those 12 receptions were the same number that DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett had in that game. Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf combined for 12 receptions again in this game. But the, the Seattle's tight ends only had six of them, and they only had one target in the first half of the game. To me, that was a stunner because I thought that it was fairly obvious on tape that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have two absolutely spectacular inside linebackers. They have a, a fearsome front, uh, you know, you know, at the, at the line of scrimmage. So get those guys running, get the quick passes to the tight ends and things of that nature to, uh, to get those guys moving, be able to create some space. And I, I just thought that it looked to me like Juno Smith was confused. The, you know, the, you know, the, the, the poor, uh, you know, decision-making, I think that, you know, times he just kind of put the, put the ball down and decided he was going to run. He, he looked a little bit like a deer caught in the headlights. And I had not seen that Geno Smith all season long for the Seahawks, but that was the Geno Smith I had previously seen and thought that that would be the guy that might lead to Drew Lockwood in the starting job. So Kudos to Geno Smith. I thought that he calmed down in the second half. Obviously, he put Seattle on his back and almost led him back to a victory. But to me, that is the number one takeaway from, you know, in my opinion, in this game is that for a, a little while there, I thought that this was the Geno Smith of old. It was good to see him come back, play well, and uh, I'm encouraged by what he did. I'm excited to see what he's going to be able to do over the second half of the season. I'm glad you mentioned the offensive game plan because that was my biggest issue in this entire game, even bigger than the defensive game plan. I mean, the Seahawks got a three and out and they forced a missed field goal, their first two defensive drives. And then they gave up those two touchdown drives. And then after that, I thought that they calmed down. They were better. And they obviously got gifted an interception with Leonard Fournette throwing the ball to Tom Brady against Tariq Woolen. I still, I can't believe that I'm saying that the Buccaneers did that. That made the DJ Dallas interception look like a good play call. That's how bad that was. The Seahawks, unfortunately, couldn't take advantage of that. I saw Geno Smith playing some hero ball in the first two and a half quarters, which it looked like some of the things we were frustrated by with Russell Wilson trying to do too much in the pocket. And he got burned after that woolen interception by trying to tuck and run, not seeing defenders coming at him. And then he fumbles. Devin white punches out of his hands. Buccaneers recover. They get no points after that gifted turnover. That was a killer mistake. But I look at the game plan that the Seahawks had in this particular one. We talked about it some on Friday's episode this felt like a game where you were going to need to lean on that quick passing game to open up the run game and maybe some shots downfield. And yet it almost felt like 2018. It seemed like Seattle early on, they were trying to do the run, run pass, running into a brick wall. It kind of felt like the Dallas Cowboys playoff game in 2018, to be honest with you. And everybody remembers how bad the offense was in the first half of that game. That's what it felt like. And when Gina was allowed to drop back and throw and he wasn't trying to make something happen with, you know, with no receivers coming open and, you know, trying to scramble too much. Gino was playing fairly well. He was making some solid throws, but they didn't get those tight ends involved. They were trying so hard to establish the run against a team that's got two mountain of men in the middle that wasn't working. The speed at linebacker was neutralizing the outside runs. This was a game that they needed to come out aggressive, throwing the ball with the quick strike passing game to loosen up that front seven. And I think they did that in the second half. They made adjustments. So give Shane Waldron credit in that regard. And the pass protection was on the money in the second half. Gino had tons of time to throw. 
He was making great passes on third and uh, fourth down in that one drive. He was able to throw a touchdown to Marquise Goodwin on fourth down. So even though they went one for nine on third down, they did have two conversions on two attempts on fourth down. And there was a lot of early down passing that was avoiding those third downs in the second half. Geno came out and had four straight throws of 10 plus yards that moved the chains in the first drive of the second half. They only got a field goal out of it, but that gave them some momentum. You could see the adjustments made by Waldron realizing we are not going to be able to just come out here and just run into a brick wall and get yardage. It wasn't working. It would have been nice, though, for them to come out. I just thought they overthought things on offense, quite frankly. When you've got the tight ends, they do. The Buccaneers struggles against tight ends to come out the way they did with a run-centric approach and constantly getting stuffed at the line, and it put them behind the eight ball. When they finally got away from that, they were able to loosen things up. And I think if they would have done that earlier, that they might have been able to get their run game going a little bit. But by the time they did get the passing game rolling, the Buccaneers were up 21-3. to So it was too late to really be able to establish that run game. So I think the game plan, that was the big takeaway for me. You know, I thought Geno played well once they switched things up. The run game just wasn't there, but they needed to realize going in that that was going to be really difficult to establish early without getting the passing game going. Yeah, I would 100% agree with you as far as like outthinking themselves. I mean, you, you have a, a, sh a sharper memory than I do, sir. When you mentioned like the going back to that Dallas Cowboys playoff game where it did feel like Seattle kind of outthought out thought themselves, I would go back a couple of weeks ago in a little bit more positive, uh, you know, outcome for the Seahawks when Brian Dable and the New York Giants came in here and we kind of talked about how we felt like the Giants kind of outthought themselves. They didn't get Saquon Barkley involved early on, I think because they anticipated Seattle and the crowd noise and everybody focusing on trying to stop uh you know the Giants dynamic running back then that might create some opportunities for Daniel Jones to be able to throw the ball down the field then of course that played right into Seattle's hands same kind of thing here as far as uh, how I think that that Seattle just uh you know again struggled to get the ball moving um by by playing with who has been their MVP on offense so far and that is clearly been Geno Smith. So to me, that was a little bit surprising to kind of switch over a little bit to the defensive side of the ball. You mentioned this a couple of times. So I will kind of push back on this idea a little bit. Um, I, I thought that it was actually a pretty darn good play call uh, by Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Anytime you take the ball out of Tom Brady's hands, I think you can make an argument that's not a good play call. And anytime you ask a running back to throw the ball, again, I think you can make an argument that's not a good play call. But I think it, at least on a whiteboard, throwing a, a running back throwing a ball to a, a wide or a quarterback excuse me who has motioned out to be the wide receiver that's only loosely being covered by a rookie cornerback of all people and Tampa Bay did this a couple of plays earlier I, I noticed that Brady motioned out there and Woolen kind of held his arm out like I know you're there but still was very much kind of creeping in towards the running game I thought that Fournette could have done a better job of taking a step or two forward to try and create that fake it was clearly a poor throw and then obviously Tom Brady slips uh, and then, you know, Tariq Woolen being the dynamic athlete that he is, he made the interception. And who knows if Tom Brady doesn't trip him, which, of course, he was accurately penalized for that. Then who knows? Maybe Tariq Woolen goes back the other way for six. So I actually thought that it was a pretty interesting play call. I think it would actually even a good play call. If it had worked, you know how play calls go. If it works, you're a genius. If it doesn't work, then you're an idiot. 
But I thought it was an interesting play call considering the that that Tampa Bay had been running the ball as effectively as they had, that they were targeting a rookie cornerback. And who was expecting Tom Brady to catch the ball? And oh, by the way, you are in Germany. Get those 70,000 fans, you know, excited. I, I thought it was a fun way, a fun, creative play call. And when you're the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at that point in the game, you're basically, you're, you're coasting. You, you know you're winning this game. So I, I like the play call for them. I obviously like it from a Seattle perspective because it completely turned the momentum around, actually gave Seattle an opportunity there. But I, I do think that it was a, a, a fun, creative, interesting call by Byron Leftwich, who in my opinion is one of the better play callers in all of the NFL and a future head coach in my opinion. Yeah, speaking of Byron Leftwich, I thought that he and Tom Brady did a really good job today of making the separation in their play calling. And what I mean by that is they were getting their receivers open with the route concepts they were running. And Tom Brady, as we expect, in total command of the offense, the two touchdown drives they had in the second quarter, two critical plays in those drives. The first one was the actual touchdown to Julio Jones, just coming unblanketed and I'm going to have to go back and see that in all 22 because I'm wondering if they might have been in cover eight where they had a lot of match principles there. And maybe Tariq Woolen, they already had protection back deep. Woolen probably supposed to take the receiver across the field. But without the all 22, I don't know that for certain. But that was a play that you could see several defenders got mixed up because of the route patterns that the Buccaneers were running. And that instantly creates separation. And Julio Jones is still a good enough player that if he's wide open like that, he's going to find his way into the end zone. And on the next drive, they had Scotty Miller wide open. I don't think there was a Seahawks defender in the same zip code. I think they were in other counties. He was so wide open and he decided to jump on a pass. He didn't need to jump and that prevented him from scoring a touchdown there. He should have scored but ended up getting him inside the 10-yard line. They scored a couple plays later, handing it off to Leonard Fournette. So there were some coverage breakdowns in this game that we have not seen from the Seahawks defense the last four games. They, again, a little bit of a regression there, but I think you also got to look and give some credit to the quarterback and the offensive coordinator on the other side because when those two are working their magic, Leftwich and Brady, uh, they can create those coverage busts with the way that they manage their offense and the pre-snaps adjustments that they make. And that really was a difference maker. So I don't know how much stock to put into the Seahawks defense regressing there as much as that might've just been, you're dealing with the GOAT and you're dealing with a very good offensive coordinator. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. I also thought that there was some, um, you know, just some uh, equipment issues. I mean, I don't know if you noticed this as much as I, Corbin, but just so many people slipping around. And it, it felt like that there were more people slipping for the Seahawks than for the Bucks. Now, again, Tom Brady slipped. That was part of the reason why that interception by Tariq Woolen was as easy as it was. But I, I thought that that it, it just felt like that, that Seattle maybe should have changed to some deeper, longer cleats earlier in the game. Um, and, and maybe they did, and maybe they still were slipping around because, again, Tampa Bay has some dynamic athletes. Um, but there was, that, that was a turf that was completely chewed up by the end of that game. A lot of guys on skates. And again, if you are able to run the football in that type of environment, it's just going to make it that much easier. As a as a big man who, who played on the defensive line myself, albeit at a very low high school level, um, you know when when big guys were able to kind of get you moving, your your feet would basically just slide out from under you. You're easy to get push get pushed back. It's hard to kind of grow roots, so to speak, if you were slipping and sliding all over the place. And I thought that the Seahawks, unfortunately 
were the, the team that was slipping and sliding a lot more. And I think that that was a big part of perhaps Tampa Bay's game plan and certainly a big part of why Seattle lost his football game. I'll admit the footing in the stadium was something that was very disappointing to me. Now, I know they had some rain earlier in the week and there's been a lot of fog. It hasn't been warm there this time of year. So there's a lot of factors to consider. But you were hoping that the field was going to be in good shape. And it did seem like the Seahawks, for whatever reason, were sliding around a bit more than the Bucks. But but guys on both teams were. It was certainly something that impacted both teams. And so that was unfortunate. You would have liked to see that. And luckily, I don't think either team had any serious injuries in this game. That's the good news. There were some cramp issues at the end for Jordan Brooks, but both teams, it appears, got out without any injuries. So that's the really good news for both the Seahawks and the Buccaneers. I'm going to close out the episode real quick just with this thought. There's been so much negativity here. When you lose, that's what happens. There were the issues stopping the run. There were the issues running the football themselves, not being able to get to Tom Brady, which is really difficult anyway, not capitalizing on turnovers. But I want to give the special teams unit a shout out because I thought the Seahawks special teams, aside from Michael Dixon's first punt being a poor one, he was amazing after that. Four different punts inside the 15, two of them downed, one down inside the five by uh, Dariq Young, the other one a coffin corner punt, which is extremely difficult to execute that was marked out at the four-yard line. That's as perfect as it gets with a coffin uh, corner punt. And Jason Myers, he's now five for five from 50-plus yards. DK Metcalf tried to make it. He was going to miss a field goal with a unsportsmanlike penalty, and Jason Myers didn't blink. Undeterred, splits the upright, plenty of distance on a 55-yarder in that footing on that stadium, booted it from 55 yards out. You get some of the rookies continuing to make plays. I mentioned Dariq Young, Joey Blunt had a nice special teams tackle as well. So that was the one area in this game, even though offense and defense wasn't up to par to win this game. I thought the special teams continued its recent run of really good play. I would agree with you. To me, the the one uh, you know knock, I, I thought that DJ Dallas had a you know kind of called for a, a fair catch when I wasn't sure that there was Tampa Bay defender close yeah. enough to warrant that. But at the same time, I thought that special teams was arguably Seattle's best unit of the day, and that had not been the case for a while there. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Check out Locked On Seahawks and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and streaming five days a week on YouTube. Coming up tomorrow, it's Tell the Truth Tuesday. We'll be dishing out our final hot takes and other thoughts from this game, putting a bow on this loss to the Buccaneers. And it's bye week, so we're going to start looking at some midseason awards and grades. We're going to get rolling on that with the Seahawks not having a game this weekend. You don't want to miss the episode. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks.